Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, and today on the Afternoon Light podcast, we're talking to Selwyn Cornish, who is the Reserve Bank of Australia's official historian, and he's currently writing the history of the Reserve Bank of Australia, 1975 to 2000. He's also an honorary associate professor in the Research School of Economics at the Australian National University. So welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast, Selwyn. Thanks very much. Great uh, to be here. It, it's great to have you on. And last month was an anniversary of the the Reserve Bank Act. Nineteen fifty nine came into effect on the fourteenth of January, nineteen sixty. That's correct. Which was uh, a pretty major event in Australian economic history, and no doubt one that's uh, imprinted on your mind. And that sparked an interest here at the Robert Menzies Institute in the history of the Reserve Bank and its precursor, the the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. And uh, we are so happy to have you on. So thank you. I wanted to start our discussion today just with a broad question, um, which is, what is the goal of, of central banking? Yes, well, it's a good question to to start a discussion um, about the Reserve Bank and central banking in Australia. The goals and functions of um, central banks have uh, evolved over time. Central banks are not static uh, institutions. They're dynamic institutions. Uh, Dr Coombs, the last governor of the Commonwealth Bank and the first governor of the Reserve Bank, Uh, famously uh, said on one occasion that, and I'd like to quote him, that a central bank, quote, must grow like a living organism within the environment provided by the financial and economic system in which it exists. Its practices and structure must evolve in response to the needs and demands of that system. Uh, And... Uh, This is what central banks have done. They haven't performed the same uh, functions. They have uh, evolved with the change in uh, economic events, uh, social events and so on, political events. And this is what has happened with central banking in Australia. But at the moment, Reserve Bank is the uh, banker to the uh, national government. It is responsible for conducting monetary policy. For example, it uh, has a responsibility to uh, assist the government in uh, seeing that inflation is uh, kept at uh, relatively low levels. Um, Very topical um, today. It is <laughs> possibly too low, but and also a responsibility for maintaining full employment or something like full employment and also assisting the government in enhancing living standards and uh, economic growth. But monetary policy uh, is probably the main thing. It also has a responsibility for maintaining the stability of the financial system. Mm. And also many central banks have um, a responsibility for conducting the prudential supervision of uh, banks and uh, non-banks like building societies and so on. Uh, The Reserve Bank had that responsibility up to 1998, but in that year, APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, was created and it was given the responsibility for the prudential supervision of banks and other financial institutions. So, as you said, this central goals of the Reserve Bank or, or the goals of a central bank in, in any country are, um, you know, they're dynamic, they're ever-changing depending on the, the system they're working within and, and, of course, the economic situation of the day. And we'll, we'll get to this later, but even the, the goal of so-called full employment, that was much more rigorously applied, I think, in the, uh, in the first 
first half to, to even three quarters of the last century, whereas now it's more of a looser a looser term and we, we can accept a bit more unemployment than we than we once did. Can I ask you a, yeah. another general question, Selwyn, before we get into some of the, the details? Um, how did the banking system in Australia evolve? Because obviously we were a colony of Britain yes. and, yes. Uh, you know, at first we wouldn't have had our, our own particularly well-planned and thought-out and regulated banking system that would have been imported from Britain and, and, uh, and of course, there would have been a lot of private activity that would have developed organically. So how, how did this... How did we get to having, in the early part of the 20th century, a Commonwealth Bank of Australia? The creation of banks in Australia go, it goes back uh, really to the uh, Bank of New South Wales, which was established in 1817... It had its bicentenary, uh, what, uh, five years ago. As the colonies uh, developed private economic activity, uh, the wool industry, uh, international trade and so on, so banks started to be set up to facilitate economic activity and uh, uh, trading finances and so on. By the late 19th century, we had a a fairly uh, diverse and sophisticated banking system. And in the 1890s, there was a a major depression um, in Australia. Many banks collapsed. A lot of people lost their savings that were deposited in banks uh, that uh, uh, had to close their, their doors. And that led to a discussion about the need for government Banks and uh, some of the colonial governments, as they were before federation, established um, savings banks to provide a safe haven uh, for people's savings. After federation, uh, the Labor Party, for example, uh, wanted to establish a government owned commercial bank to compete against the private banks with a government guarantee. Um, of deposits. Um, And so in in 1911, the Commonwealth Bank uh, was established. There was quite a debate within the Labor Party, actually. The the, uh, majority view was that the government bank should be established to compete against the private banks uh, to provide a a safe uh, haven, if you like, for uh, people's um, savings. But there was another uh, view that Uh, such a bank should be a combined commercial bank and central bank. Uh, King O'Malley, uh, who was a a federal Labor politician from um, Tasmania, uh, he was the main advocate of a composite commercial uh, central uh, government-owned bank. And were there Uh, examples around the world that he was drawing from to to lead him to that view? Was that a No, it was was, quite novel. It was quite quite novel, yes, and uh, uh, I'll uh, talk about the uh, evolutionary change in the nature of the Commonwealth Bank shortly, Um, and there were contrasts between the Commonwealth Bank uh, having a commercial uh, savings bank and trading bank attached to it in contrast to other central banks like the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so it was, it was, um, it was quite unique, and, and there was a, a debate, particularly within the uh, Labor Party. But I've discovered more recently that Deakin and Forrest, who, who were leaders of uh, non-Labor uh, groups in the federal parliament, yes. uh, they actually were discussing uh, with the Bank of England and with the British Treasury what should be done, um, and the Bank of England in particular. Um, said that, uh, you know, you should be setting up a privately owned central bank like oh, the Bank of England. Yeah, okay. And, and a, lot of the, a lot of the initial central banks were privately owned. Uh, they, they weren't government-owned institutions. And even today there are two or three central banks that are, are privately um, owned. So but, that was the uh, position but, of the non-labour forces in politics at the time? The Labor Party was championing a um, a central bank, and non-labor forces wanted the the British system or the the British recommendation of a of a privately owned central bank instead. 
Well, the, the, the dominant group um, in the Labor Party, Andrew Fisher, William Morris Hughes, uh, wanted a government-owned commercial bank. Mm. Fisher uh, won the 909 election, the first post-Federation government to have majorities in both the uh, House of Representatives and the Senate. So they they proceeded with the introduction of a Australian currency, I mean, current, uh, paper currency uh, before 1910 was issued by the banks, the separate banks. And in 1911, he established the Commonwealth Bank as a government-owned commercial bank. He did say in the second in his second reading speech when he um, introduced the uh, proposed legislation for the Commonwealth Bank, uh, he said that I'm setting up a commercial bank, but over time it might take on other responsibilities. He didn't specify what those other responsibilities might be, but the uh, general feeling was that he was suggesting that maybe it could evolve into a composite commercial and central bank along the lines that uh, O'Malley was uh, proposing. Right, right. And and this was the Commonwealth Bank of Australia in 1911? Yes. And, yes. And so... Um, beyond what you've just explained, what what were the purposes of this Commonwealth Bank? It was um, obviously uh, a novel a novel idea. It was the the government now had an interest in a commercial bank <laughs> in Australia, which gave it a degree of control over commercial activity that that might not have sat very well with some, but but obviously sat well with others. Yes, well, it, it, as I said earlier, uh, the idea really goes back to the banking collapses yes. of the 1890s. That, that was a really severe depression in Eastern Australia. I'm a Western Australian, Western Australian, and while Melbourne and Sydney, particularly Melbourne, was collapsing, the gold rushes were happening in Western Australia. I, I, I say to people, uh, three of my four grandparents were born in Eastern Australia. My two grandmothers were born in Victoria. They went with their families in the 1890s, early 1900s to Western Australia. There was unemployment, mass unemployment in Victoria. There was boom time in Western Australia. My, my grandfather Cornish was born in New South Wales. Similarly, he went as a boy with his family uh, from Sydney uh, to, to Western Australia. To the riches the of other, the West. <laughs> that's right. The other grandfather uh, was just born in Western Australia because his parents went from Sydney to, uh, to Perth too. Mm. So it, it, was, it was a major event. And uh, as I said, a lot of people lost their, uh, lost their savings. And so the Labor Party, you know, people like Chipley and so on, they, they lived, uh, you know, at a young age through this. And um, they wanted the government to establish, the federal government to establish a commercial bank to mm. provide a safe place for people's deposits. This reaction of the Labor side of politics in Australia to depression events, and this again happens in the 1930s, doesn't it? They yes. they, they observe an economic recession, you know, depression uh, and all the deprivation that comes from it, and then they look to how can we, how can we, the government, get involved in the banking system in order to... to to ensure this never happens again, and it's a it's a real yes. sort of sense. Even even in a contemporary context, you can think through after the GFC, we must never let this happen again. That sort of yes. sentiment that yes. you know these depressions they they come as you you know you're an economic historian, you will very much know, come from time yes. to time. But um, governments and I guess the the pu- the public looking to the government to ensure that people don't lose their livelihoods because of a banking collapse and, uh, and yeah. you know, don't, don't have serious long-term unemployment um, and, yeah. and all the deprivation that comes from that. Yeah. Well, the 30s depression, as you, as you indicate, well, was an important step in the evolution of central banking in Australia. But there were a, a few things happened before then. First of all, the First World War. Mm. The Commonwealth Bank... Uh, was uh, asked by the government to raise the big loans that the government needed to finance the war. And uh, the, that's what central banks uh, you know, you know, used to do. And uh, that was really the, the first step 
on the development of the Commonwealth Bank as a central bank. Then in 1920, the Commonwealth Bank was given responsibility for the printing and distribution of currency notes. That had been the Treasury's responsibility. Then in 1924... And was that controversial, uh, Selwyn, to remove that responsibility from the Treasury and give it to the Commonwealth Bank? Well, there had been uh, 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 an increase in inflation during the First World War uh, and quite a severe recession after the First World War. And uh, there was a bit of concern that uh, the responsibility for the issue of uh, currency notes shouldn't be left to a government department. No, (laughs) Uh, not those uh, bureaucrats. Printing our money. <laughs> That's right. In fact, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that Deakin and Forrest were in uh, in communication with the Bank of England and so on. And this was over. Who was going to have responsibility for the production of the new Australian currency? And uh, the Bank of England and the Treasury, British Treasury said, "Don't leave. You wouldn't give it to a government department." Um, and this is why they said, "You need you need a central bank." And you, you need to follow the, the Bank of England, have a privately owned one. This was the first steps the Commonwealth Bank was taking towards its central banking function then? Yes. Yeah. yeah. In 19, 1924, uh, there, there was a new Commonwealth Bank Act, an, an amendment act, and, and one of the uh, new components of the legislation was that uh, the settlement of cheques had to be conducted through the Commonwealth Bank. In other words, uh, the interbank balances as a result of the clearance of cheques had to be settled through accounts at the Commonwealth Bank. That is an important element of central banking, a very important element, and that happened in '24. Then you have the uh, Depression of the 30s. A few important things happened there. Com- the Commonwealth Bank took responsibility for the exchange rate. It developed a... A, a, a bigger responsibility for setting interest rates. And then the next thing was the Second World War. That added to a lot of central banking controls being given to the central bank, to the Commonwealth Bank. And then, uh, as you say, the, you know, more recently, the Reserve Bank uh, has taken on a greater responsibility for uh, financial system stability. You recall that uh, some state banks, including the um, State Bank of South Australia and the Victorian State Bank and so on, collapsed in the early 90, uh, 1990s. Uh, and then um, and, and uh, Westpac and ANZ got into a bit of trouble. Then the global financial crisis in 2007 8, uh, and then more recently, the, of course, the COVID 19 problems. The, the, uh, as well as conducting monetary policy, the uh, Reserve Bank has taken on spent more time with uh, considering uh, the financial system stability and becoming more responsible for that. So you can see that, as Coombs said in that quote that I uh, read out at the beginning, uh, it's an evolutionary change. Um, Events precipitate change uh, in the, in the central uh, central banking, Harold Macmillan, the uh, Prime Minister of uh, uh, the UK in the late fifties and uh, early sixties, was asked uh, wh- why do governments change their policy, and he famously said, uh, "Events, dear boy, events." That's right. Yes. <laughs> and you can see these events: First World War, Second World Depressions of the of the eighteen nineties, the nineteen thirties, and so on. You know, global financial crisis. But the and and we see the reach and power of of central banks becoming greater and greater. Of course, as it as it moves from um, you know issuing currency um, interest yeah. rates, yeah. then to yeah. overseeing the um, stability yeah. of financial markets and the banking yeah. system. I mean, these are a much broader a much broader remit than than perhaps was envisaged in. <laughs> By King O'Malley yeah. in nineteen nineteen oh nine. Tell me, yes, um, right. so we we go to the the Second World War, and 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 as I'm listening to you talk through the history of central banking in Australia, it, it is very much bookmarked by events, as Harold Macmillan put it so um, adroitly. Uh, Second World War, 
enormously you know, seismic event in, in global history and uh, Curtin and then Chifley um, leading, well, Menzies to start with, then Curtin, then Chifley leading the country. And mm. uh, Chifley, of course, becomes very keen to, to nationalise the banking the banks in Australia, mm. and that and that of course becomes a, a huge election in, issue in 1949, leading to the election of the the first ever mm. Liberal government led by Robert Menzies. Dr. Coombs, who you were speaking about before, who was the governor of the Commonwealth Bank and then first governor of the Reserve Bank, he wasn't a big fan of this move of Chifley's to um, try and nationalise the bank. Can you can you tell me why why was Chifley trying to nationalise the banks in the 1940s mm. what was behind mm. that well yeah well, well, well that's an interesting question because um th- there was a royal commission in the mid-30s on the australian monetary and bank systems a very famous royal commission somewhat similar to the campbell committee in the uh, 70s early 80s chifley was a member of the royal commission and he wrote a minority report advocating supporting bank nationalisation. So, you know, he had uh, uh, this idea uh, before the attempt to nationalise the banks in the late 40s. I think, um, as I said earlier, Chifley was motivated by uh, what he saw in the 1890s, banks collapsing all over the place and people uh, becoming destitute because their savings were destroyed, were, were, were lost. Now, more immediately... Uh, Chifley in 1945, before he became Prime Minister, he was the Treasurer. And he was responsible for the first Banking Act by the Commonwealth, the Banking Act of 1945. Mm. Banking Act didn't say anything about nationalising the banks, but Section 48 of the Banking Act of 1945 said that all government banking business, state governments, local government authorities would have to bank with the Commonwealth Bank. Now, the city, uh, the Melbourne City Council obviously didn't like that because it was it was banking um, with, I think, the National Bank and maybe the State Bank of Victoria. It took uh, that clause, 48, to the High Court and the High Court judged that Section 48 of the Banking Act was unconstitutional. Immediately, uh, Chifley uh, said he was going to nationalise the banks and he introduced the legislation and the legislation passed. There was a challenge to that legislation. It went to the High Court. The High Court again said it was unconstitutional. It then went to the Privy Council, which in those days was the highest court of appeal for, for Australia. And the Privy Council supported the High Court and said it's unconstitutional. That was the end of bank nationalisation. Um, but Chifley, I think, was, you know, going back to his minority report, I think he was always sensitive to what happened in the 1890s. But also, more particularly, once uh, the High Court upheld the appeal from the Melbourne City Council, Chifley thought that the other monetary policy tools and instruments in the Banking Act would also be challenged. And uh, he thought, well, you know, sorry, you know, uh, this is going to cause a lot of trouble were that to happen. So I think putting those two or three things together, you you get the answer to to your question, why was Chifley... um, uh, wanting to nationalise the banks. Yeah, I mean, there's um in your in your paper you wrote on um this this period you you extract a quote from Chifley where he said in relation to this Commonwealth Bank Bill 1945 um, that the legislation was based on the conviction that the government must accept responsibility for the economic condition of the nation. The problems of the post-war period of employment, development and trade are of such magnitude and involve such serious consequences that no other attitude could be maintained. And then went on to say the government has decided to assume the powers which are necessary over banking policy to assist it in maintaining national economic health and prosperity. And really, um, again, went on to say that um, 
the present government, that's his government, is determined to ensure so far as it lies within its power that the distress of the depression years will not be repeated. So that, you know, really yeah. intent yeah. On, on making sure yeah. that there was no repeat of, of all the deprivation that had been experienced prior to uh, the First World War. Uh, but it didn't succeed yeah. and, and Menzies used um, Chifley's, despite the, the courts saying it was unconstitutional, Menzies used Chifley's uh, fight for bank nationalisation in Australia as evidence of his socialist tendencies and certainly found a very large amount of support within Australia and Australian public for his point of view. Uh, so Menzies becomes Prime Minister in forty nine. Um, Dr Coombs remains the Governor of the, the Commonwealth Bank, um, the Central Bank, um, and, and they um, get on and by 1949, 59, 10 years later, they uh, have decided to establish a Reserve Bank of Australia. So they are separating central banking from the Commonwealth Bank as a as a, as a trading commercial mm. bank. What what was it um, that Menzies felt was necessary about that? Why did he come to that conclusion? Well, again, the you know sort of evolutionary uh, element uh, came came in here too. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, as the Commonwealth Bank developed central banking responsibilities. There was a feeling that, you know, this is not what central banks are not also commercial banks. You know, the two shouldn't be together. In fact, in the 1920s, when the Commonwealth Bank was starting to develop as a central bank, it asked the Bank of England to send somebody out to Australia <laughs> to, to tell it how, how it could act as a, as a central bank. And one of the things this fellow, who was a very senior member of the uh, Bank of England, uh, said, well, for a start, you shouldn't uh, be a commercial bank. You, 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 you know, central banks don't have savings banks and trading banks attached to them. The 1935-37 Royal Commission supported the composite commercial and central banking functions. And if I just quote a, a short passage, this is what the Royal Commission said in its report. Quote, although it's unusual for a central bank to carry on trading activities and to control a savings bank, we consider it desirable that the Commonwealth Bank should do both. We are of the opinion that the use of its trading bank activities as an adjunct the central banking policy is in keeping with its central bank functions and is to be approved. Now, um, Coombs uh, was not supportive of separating the commercial and central banking functions um, of the Commonwealth Bank. Why? Certainly by the 1950s, um, he thought that the uh, commercial banking functions of the Commonwealth Bank were, were, were so substantial that it would be able to assist the central banking uh, functions of the Commonwealth Bank. In other words, if there was a, a major depression or even a, a major inflation, the central banking instruments of the Commonwealth Bank might not be powerful enough uh, to control a depression or a, or a major inflation. But with the... Commonwealth Bank easing its uh, interest rates and uh, uh, advancing more money and so on during a depression, that would be very helpful. And conversely, during an inflation, by tightening its lending, by increasing its interest rates and so on, that would help the, the central banking part of the Commonwealth Bank. And the size that of that trading um, side of the bank... Um, was such yep. that it would lead the private banks to follow what the terms it was setting. Is that the implication? Uh, well, it, it, that that would, was probably uh, in in uh, Coombs's mind. But on the other side, the private banks said, "Just hang on a minute. The Commonwealth Bank is our major competitor, yeah. and it's also the it's also the central bank. The governor r runs." our largest competitor 
and also is the head of the of the central bank. This is not fair. No, you know, they were suspicious that the uh, the central banking part of the Commonwealth Bank was providing confidential information to its greatest competitor, and so it started to agitate for the separation of the two parts. I mean, they went to uh, went to Menzies, they went to the government through the fifties. Uh, there was an attempt, uh, there was an amendment to the uh, Commonwealth Bank Act in 1953, uh, which gave the Commonwealth Trading Bank more independence. And it was thought that that might appease the private banks by, by you know, getting the trading bank really out of the, uh, out of the central banking part of the, um, not totally, because they, both parts still had the same governor and both parts still had the same board of directors. So that didn't satisfy the private banks and they continued to make representations to the government. In 1957, Menzies made up his mind that uh, separation was going to occur. Uh, Coombs continued to oppose it. He he went to Menzies and Menzies said to him in in 57, he said, um, look, it's going to happen, so live with it. And, and Coombs, to his credit, wrote a letter to Menzies saying, I, I, I oppose separation, but I think it could work. And I will do everything I can to see that it will work. Mm. I think it was this attitude, this sort of attitude by Coombs that appealed to Menzies. Menzies knew that he had been close, that Coombs had been close to Chifley and was, you know, probably a, a Labor voter. But he was loyal to the government of the day mm. and sincerely loyal. You know, he, 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 when, when Coombs said that in his letter, Menzies knew that he wasn't just going through the motions, that he really meant that. Um, so anyway, legislation was introduced in, in um, uh, I think, November 57 by Fadden, who, the leader of the country party who was the treasurer, um, it passed the how to to separate uh, the two to create and, and the country the, party the, was on side with this separation. Well, the country party wasn't. You know, they were, they would have I think preferred to leave it, uh, leave the composite uh, Commonwealth Bank there. But um, it, it was mainly the Liberal Party members who who were being um, you know to some degree <laughs> pushed by the private banks. Um, uh, that that uh, you know were pushing this. Uh, Menzies, I think, got a bit tired of the private banks, uh, you know, coming to him, and, and in the end, he said, "Look, it's going to happen. Mm. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to stop stop this." So the legislation was introduced by Fadden. It passed the House of Representatives, but in the Senate, there were two DLP senators. There was one Queensland Labor senator. The three of them voted with the ALP, the vote was tied, and as we know, a tied vote, the bill is not passed. Mm. Uh, In early 58, the next year, Fadden reintroduces the legislation and the same thing happened. The Labor Party opposing this legislation, that was quite contrary to its previously held positions, wasn't it? Well, the interesting thing is that in 1930, the Scullin Labor government, the treasurer was E.G. Theodore. In 1930, Theodore introduces legislation to separate Mm. the commercial and uh, central banking functions of the Commonwealth Bank. He was going to create in his legislation what he called the Central Reserve Bank of Australia. Now, what happened? It passed the House of Representatives, where Scullin had a majority, clearly. It didn't have a majority in the Senate. Uh, The coalition parties uh, did not pass the legislation. What uh, Menzies Fadden were trying to do in in, in 57, uh, the Labor Party were trying to do in 1930 and were opposed by the coalition. Now the Labor Party is is opposing the coalition. You know, a, a bit of a political game going on here. Anyway... Just to wrap this up, in late 58, there was a general election and the coalition wins back its majority in the Senate. Uh Fadden retires, 
Fadden retires at that election, Holt becomes the treasurer, and the first thing he does when Parliament reassembles in early 59 is to reintroduce Fadden's letter in its past. And the rest of... And the rest of 59 is taken up with uh, with the administrative uh, things that had to be done to uh, fulfil the separation. And as you said, on the 14th of January 1960, the Reserve Bank of Australia was created. There's just one other thing here that uh, that is not often considered. Even people in the Reserve Bank today um, don't know about it. The Reserve Bank Act of 1959 says quite clearly that the Reserve Bank is the bank that was established in 1911. In other words, words, the Reserve Bank is the old bank and the new bank, the Commonwealth Banking Corporation, which uh, which took on the commercial activities of the old Commonwealth Bank, was the new bank. Ah, interesting. And, and among, and among other things, this is the reason why the Reserve Bank has all the records, all the archival records of the former Commonwealth Bank going back to 1911 because it's, it's their records. It's the Reserve Bank records. Legally, it was the bank. Based on the act. Yeah. In 1911, yeah. So, so actually when, when we are commemorating the, the anniversary of the establishment of the Reserve Bank on the 14th of January 1960, we actually are commemorating the anniversary of Commonwealth Banking Corporation, did you call it? Um, well, rather, can I just... And that the, yeah. the Reserve Bank actually has always been yeah. with us since 1911. Yeah. <laughs> this is very interesting. Um, it's semantics, really. <laughs> Yeah, but it's but it's you know it's part of our history and it, it should be it should yeah. be more known. Uh, Glenn Stevens said to me, um, leading up to the 50th anniversary of the um, Reserve Bank uh, coming up next year, you know, um, and um, I, I, I'd like you to write a uh, if, you know write a small book you know on the on the history of central banking, which which I did. But I said to him, it's it's not the 50th anniversary of the Reserve <laughs> Bank. The following year will be the hundredth anniversary, and he said. Yes, I know, but I don't want to have an argument with the Commonwealth Bank. Uh, well, um, we, we then go to the so-called 100th birthday of the Commonwealth Bank. I was invited to their big dinner because I helped them. They, they wrote a, a sort of coffee table history of the Commonwealth Bank and I helped them with a bit of it. And I, for my pain, so I was invited to the big dinner, which was a terrific dinner and entertainment and so on. And uh, I was introduced to the then CEO of the Commonwealth Bank, as, as the Reserve Bank's uh, official historian, and he sort of pushes me and he says, oh, the Reserve Bank, he said, you're only 50 years old ah. and we're 100 years old. And I said, no, excuse me, the Reserve Bank is 100 years old and you're not even 50 years old. What, he said, what, 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 explain this? And I explained it to him and he was, he was shocked too. He didn't know. It's, it's, anyway. it's very funny. And, um, well, it's interesting how... Um, you know, history can be inaccurate but still staunchly defended. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah. There you go. Well, this, is why, this is why you need a historian, I suppose. You, yeah, <laughs> indeed, indeed, who reads the fine print. Tell me, so we have the we have a bank called the Reserve Bank of Australia, um, potentially beginning its life on the 14th of January 1960 or potentially um, <laughs> um, 49 years before that. Um what was the mission of this of this new newly named RBA, um, and 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 then you know how did it evolve? And uh, we were talking about full yes. employment before this sort of, you know, in the fifties, yes. the government was very focused on full employment. Everyone needed a job. Every you know that was your social co- your government's social contract with the Australian people was yeah. you you have a job. We will make yeah. you, you you look after your own life. You put food on your table, buy your house, do what you like, but we will make sure that the economic conditions mean you can get a job if you want one. That was mm. that was you know clear, and there were plenty of jobs, and we had m- millions of migrants coming, finding jobs mm. very easily because there was no support package for them if if they didn't. Mm. Well, uh, uh, coming out of the um, depression of the 1930s when there was mass unemployment, 
uh, and stemming from that, Keynes's general theory uh, of uh, employment, interest and money. Employment came first in his title of his most famous book. There was, uh, you know, great concern among policymakers, particularly after the war, that uh, that wouldn't happen again, that uh, full employment had to be the the policy. And in fact, um, Australia, to a large degree, led the world with the development of full employment policy. We took, we developed, and it was mainly Coombs, developed um, the full employment approach, which Australia took to all the big international conferences, the the Bretton Woods conference that created the IMF, uh, the San Francisco conference that created the United Nations. We got full employment into the charter of the United Nations. So coming out of the war uh, from the depression, there was a big emphasis on maintaining full employment. Uh, But then through the 70s and 80s, we had the great inflation uh, and uh, attitudes tended to change that the uh, emphasis should be on um, reducing inflation, getting inflation down to low low numbers. And, uh, of course, that led the Reserve Bank to develop its inflation target of uh, 2 to 3% over the uh, cycle, over the economic cycle. So, again, e- evolution, events and so on were, were uh, pushing that. But um, the... I talked earlier uh, in relation to bank nationalisation, the 1945 Banking Act, but there was also a Commonwealth Bank Act in 1945, and it included what's sometimes called the Charter, which was taken over and put into the Reserve Bank Act. It was the same wording, and if I could quote it, this is the 45 Commonwealth Bank Act, the same wording is in the 59 Reserve Bank Act. It stated that it was the duty of the Commonwealth Bank, Reserve Bank, quote, to pursue a monetary and banking policy directed to the greatest advantage of the people of Australia. And it went on to direct the bank to use its powers as, quote, will best contribute to A, the stability of the currency of Australia, B, the maintenance of full employment in Australia, and C, the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia. This is the so-called charter of the Commonwealth Bank and then the Reserve Bank. So, and that, um, and that survives to this day? It, it's still in the Reserve Bank Act. Yes. So it, it, it's got to take into account inflation, which is the, you know, the maintaining the value of the currency, yep. full employment and the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia. Sometimes that... That's sort of interpreted in terms of uh, facilitating economic growth and living standards and so on. So they're the three uh, things that instruct the Reserve Bank today. Uh, They are interpreted differently, though, of course, Selwyn, aren't they, Uh, compared to the 1960s to 2022? Inflation is very much on the mind, I think, of the Reserve Bank at the moment. Of course, economic prosperity always on the mind looking at the impact of its interest rate settings on on the general economy uh but full employment um well at the moment we have um extremely low um unemployment in australia um historically speaking but but is that as much a focus today as it once was well, well, you know, one of the problems with the charter is that um, you know those three things are not necessarily compatible. You know, um, if 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 you're going to uh, you know maintain a low inflation rate, uh, you might have to pursue a tight monetary policy, which could create unemployment. So they could be inconsistent, and therefore governments have really got to choose you know, which which of these it's going to put its priority on. And as I said, I think after the Second World War for some decades, the priority was on trying to maintain full employment and then it switched to um, maintaining a, a reasonably low rate of uh, of inflation. Of course, as I said earlier, there's been a, an increasing emphasis too on uh, maintaining the stability of the financial system, which you know has become more important with globalisation, uh, with more um, market-oriented economies and so on, greater competition between financial institutions and so on. Um, so, uh, y- yes, the priority has changed. 
changed and no doubt will continue to change according to underlying economic circumstances and probably according to the ideology of different political parties. Yeah. Is there ever any sense that the um, RBA board should be challenged on its priorities, that they might have diverted from the charter as it is written into the RBA Act? Is there ever any moves amongst the commentariat or the academic community or even the bureaucracy, the government, to to challenge that? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Because, of course, we have an... The RBA, the board is independent, so it determines its own interpretation of the charter, but that is, of course, um, subject to administrative review, presumably. Yes. Well, the charter is fairly vague, as I said. The different components are incompatible and uh, and so on. So priorities have to be worked out. And you know, some commentators would, would uh, argue that the priority should be on uh, keeping inflation low and others would argue that the priority should be on maintaining uh, uh, high uh, employment and rapid economic growth and so on. But, uh, you know, as you know, there's been a debate about the the, the uh, inflation target, the, the target of two to two to three percent, um, it, it hasn't been. Inflation hasn't been between two to three percent now for uh, what ten years, eight, eight or ten ten years. Um, so uh, uh, you, you also know that uh, uh, the treasurer and the uh, shadow treasurer have both indicated that uh, they want to see a new review of the Reserve Bank, uh, with that issue, among others, being high on the agenda of the review. So stay tuned um, mm. on that. Mm. Yeah. that. But, yes, it, it, it has been a, a, a constant source of debate. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wanted to finish our conversation with your reflections on um, Robert Menzies' relationship with the Governor of the Reserve Bank, um, Dr. Coombs, Nugget Coombs. Why was he called Nugget? Was he small? Was he a nuggety? He, he, he was well. He was small and nuggety. Well, he was small and nuggety. <laughs> well, well, he was one of the seven dwarfs. He was one of, of the course. seven dwarfs. Yes. 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 <laughs> uh, he was. He was quite small. He wasn't the smallest, but um, you know, he was fairly fairly small. Uh, I, I used to. Uh, 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 Coombs was uh, at one stage Chancellor of the ANU. And the vice-chancellor was Sir John Crawford. And the pair of them were part of the Seven Dwarfs. And to see them talking to each other was, uh, was very interesting because they, they were dwarfs in size, both about <laughs> five, five foot tall. And the other one was the head of the Treasury, Sir Roland Wilson. He was the smallest of the lot. Oh, of he them. was really small, um, was it? Okay. Oh, he was, yeah. <laughs> somebody said to him once, oh, Roland, uh, gee, you're small. And he said, I might be small in stature, but I'm big up here, he said. When he was a Rhodes Scholar, he had two PhDs, one from Oxford, one from Chicago, and so on. So yeah, it would have been um, hard to find a rebuttal to that. Uh, they were obviously yeah, very, right. very, very, very smart people. Um, so, yeah. so Menzies had a nice... Re- relationship with with nugget <laughs> nugget yes yeah yeah well uh when uh nugget uh retired <laughs> as governor of the reserve bank in 1968 sir robert menzies wrote to to coombs and this is what he said and and uh, coombs reproduces the letter in his autobiography uh, menzies said you will remember that when i came back into office You, as a man suspected of unorthodox ideas, were under a cloud of suspicion by some of my colleagues. The cloud soon disappeared as it became increasingly clear to the most prejudiced that we had as governor a man of the most conspicuous ability and of the most shining integrity. It remains a matter of great pride for me to have got to know you as well and to have benefited so much from your great services to our country. But, Menzies went on, but my happiest memory is that we have become close friends in a personal way. And uh, I, I think this says a lot about Menzies in particular. I mean, as I said earlier, uh, 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 Coombs worked very closely with uh, uh, Chifley. Chifley selected him to be governor of the Commonwealth Bank 
Um, even Coombs said that the governorship should have gone to Sir Leslie Melville. Um, but, uh, but Coombs went on to say uh, the Prime Minister uh, and Treasurer chiefly wanted me as, as, uh, as governor. Um, but Menzies still could write a letter um, like that. Uh, and they were close friends. Uh, I, I was struck going through the archives of the Reserve Bank for the 50s into the early 60s, um, the close relationship they had. Uh, what quite often happened was that inflation would start to accelerate. Coombs would go to Fadden and then and then to Holt to say, look, we've got to lift interest rates. Monetary policy has got to be tightened because we have a fixed exchange rate and we'll have a balance of payments crisis. Uh, Fadden used to say, <laughs> farmers don't like high interest rates, laddie, go away. And he would go, Coons would go to Menzies. <laughs> and quite, and, and quite, quite often Menzies would say, I agree with you, but we're in coalition and I can't, I can't force my coalition partners um, uh, to do this. I mean, in time, th- they had to increase interest rates, but this was the initial movement. But uh, Coombs had, had uh, uh, you know, would go to Menzies, they would have a good talk about this. Quite often Menzies would say he agreed with what uh, Coombs was saying. Um, so uh, they got on very well. But, uh, of course, uh, Menzies had this brilliant group of public servants. Yes, the, the seven dwarfs. The, yeah. the seven dwarfs. <laughs> Uh, but there were some big ones too, like Sir Arthur Tang and uh, <laughs> Sir Frederick Wheeler and so on. It, it was a brilliant group when you think of Wilson, Crawford, Coombs um, uh, and, and others uh, in, that, in that group. Um, but at the same token, uh, you know, Menzies didn't always defer no. Uh, to, to these brilliant people. You know, he, he was his own man, obviously. Well, ultimately, I mean, he, it was his name on the ballot paper or his party, right. party's name uh, on the ballot paper. So he had to but, he had to do what he thought was right and, and you know, do do what was right by the Australian people and the, the, yeah, the wisdom yeah. of the seven dwarves and their, and their, and their departments yes. was, yeah. well, was they, only, well, only all- one part, one part of the um, assessment, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, they had all worked with the, for, for the previous Curtin and Chifley governments, uh, and and yet Menzies got on with them very well, and they worked very well with Menzies, and they had the highest opinion of uh, of Menzies uh, as uh, a political leader, as prime minister. Well, I think that's a, a lovely note to end on, Selwyn. Thank you so much for joining me on yeah. the Afternoon Light podcast today to talk about the history of the Reserve Bank slash Commonwealth Bank. And uh, I look forward to hearing feedback on that debate about its <laughs> birthday. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.